This morning, as you see, we are in the book of Colossians, and I realize that many of you have not been with us in the Bible study in Colossians. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction so that we're all on the same page. What I did is this morning, normally I would do the Sunday school, so I just revamped Colossians and made it into a sermon. And then Larry Hamilton was nice enough to do a presentation on the deity of Christ, and it was absolutely fabulous. So if you get a chance, pick that up as well. So we're in Colossians 2, 16 through 23, where we see that we have the freedom in Christ, in Christ from the stoichia's authority. Now, everyone here I know has heard the term stoichia. That, I just want you to know at the outset, is synonymous with the host of heaven that Bob has preached on and also the demons. That's what they are. And that will become very clear as we get into this study. Now, let me give you a little bit of background before we get started. And so on this slide... Before I get into even to the slide, I'm going to give you a little bit of history and come back with me, if you will, to the year 605 B.C. In that year, Nebuchadnezzar, he is king of the Babylonians. God uses him as a means of spanking Judah because of their sins and their idolatry against Yahweh. So in the year 605, he launches an incursion and surrounds Judah, in a sense, and brings out a bunch of people into captivity, a deportation. And then in 597 B.C., And then another one finally in 586 B.C. where finally Jerusalem is destroyed. And so the people of Judah are then in Babylonian captivity until 539 B.C. when Cyrus comes to power. Um, If you recall, he's the Medo-Persian king. And then later on, Artaxerxes in 445 gives a decree so that those in Judah can go home. Here's the point. Not all of the Jews end up going home but many, many of them settle in the known areas around the world, including Colossae. And in fact, they adopted many of the Persian practices. And so now look on the slide with me, if you will. This is where the issue comes in. What Paul was fighting at Colossae was this notion. Number one, the Jews take along the Persian concept of astral deacons. So in other words, they ended up engaging in syncretism where they borrowed from the Persians' religion and they basically accepted it as a magical practice. Okay, so this is nothing short of idolatry. So now these astral deacons, they believe that they ruled every 10 degrees of the celestial sphere. Now what in the world is an astral deacon? Well, that's the stoichia. These are the demons. Okay, so if you think about it, they believed in 36 of these deacons. And so if they controlled every 10 degrees of the celestial sphere, it would be 360 degrees, wouldn't it? And I thought it was interesting, does that tell us then that these people believe that the earth was round or a sphere? Perhaps. It's very interesting. But anyway, it's heresy nonetheless, right? We shouldn't be too excited about that. <laughs> so, but at any rate, here's the problem then. Number two, these deacons or the stoichia, they control people's fate, whether it be their health, their wealth, their posterity, or their prosperity. If you didn't want your goat to fall down and break its leg or your child to be born with a third eye, if you wanted a bumper crop, you needed protection from these stoichia. And here comes the rub. Here's the problem. This is what Paul is reacting against. Number three, the heretics at Colossae believed, therefore, that they had to invoke the help of angels and perform ascetic rituals so that they would gain the favor of the stoichia. Now, what in the world is an ascetic practice. Well, it's any practice that you would engage in. It's, it's like a ritual where you engage in self-denial so that you can garner the favor of either a deity or an angel. And so, friends, what they were concerned about isn't so much 
the day-to-day life, or I'm, I'm sorry, the eternity, but they were concerned about day-to-day life. They believed they needed protection, and the way to garner protection in their day-to-day life was by invoking these angels to protect them from the stoichia. And so Paul had to prove to them that, no, when you trusted in Christ, in Christ alone, he is sufficient, not only for your salvation, but your sanctification, and also for your provision and protection. One note is, we see some examples of these ascetic practices, actually in this section, in Colossians 2.21, where Paul is going to talk about decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's what they are. Those are the ascetic practices that he's referring to. Now, how does this message in Colossians 2 relate to us today? Think about it. In the time of Colossae, the Colossians, those people there, the heretics, they're concerned, again, not about their eternal security, but about provision day to day. Okay, now, fast forward to our day. Even if you can get uh, Christians to agree in America that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone, they oftentimes will try to add to what? Their sanctification by engaging in self-made religion. So the heresy at Colossae was they said, we can't trust God alone for our provision. We need self-made religion. We're going to do these ascetic practices. And the same thing is happening today. People are saying, well, I can get to know God more by developing my own ascetic practices, uh, whether it be labyrinths, whether it be centering prayer, whether it be meditation, and they believe that they can know God through their own self-made religion. And friends, it is not acceptable to the Lord, and we will lay that case out. So let's get into the scripture here then. And we're in, of course, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. That's where we're starting. But again, let me give you one more introductory note. Notice there's a therefore. And any time you see a therefore, you should ask the question, what's it there for, right? Okay, good. And I know that we didn't all study this together last week, section that is chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So let me explain what the therefore is there for. In chapter 2, verse 15, Christ had disarmed the stoichia. And how did he disarm the stoichia? Actually, God, and God did it through Christ. So the Father did it through Christ. That's the image. Well, he did it in three ways. In verse 13, he had forgiven all of our transgressions. That's Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.14, he canceled out our certificate of debt. And in verse 15, he nailed it to the cross. Okay? He even nailed it to the cross. So it's completely done. There is no indictment that the stoichia can bring against us. It's been wiped away. I think Keith Gentoff said last week, rightfully so, the stoichia no longer have a stick to beat us over the head with. So again, we see the idea, that's all we need. We need Christ, and that's it. So that's why the therefore is therefore. So now Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge, in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The first question I want to ask in this text are, what are the things? And of course you can see that the things refer back to the food, the drink, the festival, the new moon, and the Sabbath. But what are they? And there's some debate. Look at number one on the screen Some people think that they're the Old Testament civil and ceremonial law. That's the view that I hold to. But some people think that there are added on to these, uh, to the ceremonial and civil law, these added magical rituals where you would try to garner the favor of the the angels for protection against the stoichia. That's number two. I don't think that's implied here. Now, why? What's our clue? Well, because whatever Paul is talking about is a shadow of the substance. Were pagan practices ever a shadow of the substance to come? No. 
only the Old Testament civil and ceremonial law. So right here, I think Paul has primarily in view that the heretics, remember they had pagan practices, yes, but they also had it mixed in with Judaism and they were trusting also in aspects of the ceremonial and the civil law. Okay, now uh, I'm going to show you a passage from Hebrews 10.1 that actually talks about these Old Testament shadows because what I want to do is I want to explore in what way the law is still present with us, in what way was it a shadow pointing to the substance, and what laws are in fact still with us. So let's wrestle a little bit with that. And we're going to see here the writer of Hebrews uses the same terminology that Paul just used as he talks about these Old Testament shadows. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. What sacrifices is he talking about? Well, the ones that the Levitical priesthood put forward. They were impotent. They could do nothing. They could not affect salvation in the least. And in fact, if you recall in Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats, it was impossible for them to provide atonement. So what were they? They were merely a shadow that pointed forward to the substance. So when the Israelite was obedient to God by doing those sacrifices, he didn't think that he was saved by putting a goat in the offering plate, right? Are you with me? He thought he was saved because he knew one day Messiah would do that for him. That's saving faith. It's been the same yesterday, today, and forever. But let's ask the question, which part of the law, even though it is now or it's regarded here as a substance of the shadow, is there a part of the law that's still with us? And if it is, what parts? Well, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to talk, first of all, about what I believe are the distinction within the law itself. And I think we can break the law into the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral aspects of the law. Now, friends, realize many scholars will they'll shoot back at me and they'll say, well, Eric, where do you see these words in the Old or the New Testament, civil, ceremonial, and moral? But my response back is we don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, yet the concept is taught. We don't see the word hypostatic union that Larry was teaching us today, but yet the concept is there, the doctrine is there. So my point is the concept is taught that there is a division in the law. Some of it is eternal and will always be with us and some of it's going to be done away with. Now we see examples of this from Christ himself. If you recall, remember in Matthew 23, 23, he rebukes the Pharisees. Why? Because he says you are zealous for tithing in mint, dill, and cumin. But what do they do? They neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That was the weightier matters of the law. And friends, don't say, well, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that they had to uh, give any seeds away like mint, cumin, and dill. So that was just man-made. No, in uh, Leviticus 27.30, it was a requirement. So the point being is that was regarded as a smaller issue and it was designed as a shadow of things to come so it would be done away with. So how do we know, friends, what parts of the law are still with us and what parts are not. Well, let me give you two principles. And before I give you these principles, come back with me in 1 Corinthians 9 if you have your Bibles open. And in 1 Corinthians 9, there's a section where Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win those who are Jews. And to those who are under the law, I became like one under the law, although myself am not under the law, to win those who are under the law. And then in verse 21, 1 Corinthians 9:21, he says this. Paul says, To those without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under what? The law of Christ. So here's what I want you to think about. When the new covenant came, the old covenant was completely done away with, and now you and I are under the law of Christ. 
But that law, what's incorporated within that law of Christ, is the moral aspect of the Old Testament law. Let me give you now two principles that you can use to determine if any given Old Testament law is still immoral, or in other words, it would be immoral if we broke it today. Let me give you two principles. First of all, laws that are still in effect to Christians will always be reiterated in the New Testament, or typically are reiterated in the New Testament. So, for instance, if anything is mentioned in the New Testament, you know that's still binding on us because that's the New Covenant. The second principle is this. If the reason or the grounding for such law is permanent, that law is permanent and will always be with us. Let me give you some examples. Let's look at the example of murder. Will murder always be wrong? Well, of course, because men and women are always going to be made in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6 says, If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because in the image of God, God made man. And that will never change. So murder is always part of the moral law. It is under the law of Christ. Sabbath. At the end of the day, does it matter what day that you and I worship God on? No. So what was the Sabbath designed to do? It was a shadow of the substance to come, namely that when Jesus Christ the Messiah would come, he was our Sabbath rest. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It was not fulfilled when the Israelites went into Canaan. And so when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you entered into the substance. You now have Sabbath rest. Okay? And it is a, it's a beautiful picture. Now, what about circumcision? Circumcision was a picture that one day the seed would come through the mating of men and women, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. But when the Messiah came, do we need circumcision anymore? No, it was merely a shadow of the substance to come. So do you see how that was designed to be done away with? And so what Paul is saying here in this previous section that we were looking at in Colossians is that if you go back to the Old Testament ceremonial and civil law, what are you doing? You're going back to the shadow and you're forgetting the substance that is Jesus Christ. And ironically, you are putting yourself under the stoichia, which are in fact the demons. You are believing in a doctrine of demons. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to Colossians 2.18. And here we see, and, and it's connected on to verse 19, but I just want to deal with verse 18 first. It talks about we, the fact that we should trust in Christ and not religious experiences. Now realize, friends, this is one of the most difficult, and, and let me just say it, I'll be bold, it's the most difficult verse in the entire New Testament to translate because of one word. It's a participle, imbatuon. The reason why it's so difficult to translate is it's only used once in the New Testament, and people have wrestled about what it really means. Okay, so what I'm going to read to you is on the left side is the New, New American Standard Bible, And then on the right side is a translation from a man named Clinton Arnold. He is a man who I I read his book about the Colossian syncretism, and it is fabulous. This man has done more research into primary sources trying to figure out what the heresy was than any other, and it really is the final word. I was turned on to that book by Keith Gendoff and Bob, and I couldn't put it down. It's fabulous. So Clinton Arnold is his name, and it's called The Colossian Syncretism. I highly recommend you get it. So I'll be showing you his translation, which I think is superior. So let me read the New American Standard. Paul writes this. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Now here comes Mbatuon, taking his stand on visions he has seen. Now to be fair, that's not bad. But it's not as good as Arnold's translation. I'll explain why. Listen to what Arnold, how he renders it. He says, Let no one condemn you by insisting on ascetic practices and invoking angels because he, he, 
in Batuon, he entered the things he had seen. Namely, he based his knowledge on visionary experiences. Okay, so what was going on, friends, was this. This Clinton Arnold, this scholar, he, def- he found out that this term in Batuon was used in the, these mystery religions in their temple as a technical term to indicate that they had entered into these ecstatic visions and it was actually part of an initiation rite. So if you lived at Colossae at the day and you were going to do this, more than likely you would forsake some sort of food or drink and then you would enter into this ascetic, this ascetic practice whereby you would enter into a visionary experience in Batuon where you would come into contact with angels and therefore believe now that you had protection from the stoichia. Are you following me? Okay. And so, again, they're not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in the worship and the meeting of angels. And so that's what the problem is. So in Batuon has a, as a tech, is a technical term that has to do with entering into the second stage of a mystery religion. So now, think about it. The heretics at Colossae, because they entered into this powerful experience and they knew you and I as Christians back then, we didn't have that experience. They looked down their nose against people who didn't have the same experience because they thought, well, you don't have protection from the stoichia, and we do. And our proof is our experiences. Whereas the Christian had to believe in the word of God, not an ecstatic experience, and trust that, no, I I do have, in fact, salvation from first to last and protection even from the stoichia. And ironically, who was under the stoichia, the demon's authority? Those who were teaching such things and those who were doing them. So it's a reversal, is it not? Okay, now let me show you the whole passage here, how it connects again. The idea here is we have to trust in Christ, not religious experiences. And again, I'm giving you kind of Arnold's translation here. Colossians 2, 18 through 19, Paul writes, Let no one condemn you by insisting on ascetic practices and invoking angels because he entered, and bought to one again, the things he had seen, conceited without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth from God. I want to point out a few terms in here. Notice the term condemn. It comes from a Greek kata brabuo. Say that four times, you own it, right? You can use it all you want. Kata brabuo literally means to judge someone as a referee that they are not worthy of a prize. And so in that respect, the NASB, I think, nails it. It's a very good translation. So Paul is giving an imperative command. Don't let anybody disqualify you. You have the prize. Why? Because you trusted in Christ. Okay? Don't let anybody disqualify you because you haven't fallen into these religious, self-made religious experiences. Notice also that they are conceited without cause. Why was it without cause and why were they conceited? Well, because they were really fooled, ironically, these heretics, by the demons themselves. So when they engaged in the practices of, of trying to have visions to protect themselves from the stoichia, again, they were under the stoichia's authority. And they were fooled, and yet they boasted in it. Um, notice also the phrase, the head and body. This is a common phrase in the Pauline epistles. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 12. We saw it earlier, actually, in Colossians 1.18. But I'm going to cite to you Ephesians 4.15 because I want you to see how important it is that Jesus is the head and you and I are the body. Ephesians 4.15, Paul writes this. He says, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, namely Christ. So the problem is, is then these heretics, they are divorced of the head. They are disassociated with the head. And so what kind of growth are they doing? Well, it's all on their own. 
They're not associated with Christ in the least. And that's a big problem. Here they thought they were with him, and all along they are not. Notice also that the growth is from God, very obvious, but this is by grace. How do we grow in our day-to-day lives in the area of sanctification? It's by grace, is it not? It's not by any works. It's not by self-made religion. And so the heretics, again, they believe that growth was by works of what? The demons. They put themselves under the stoic, and they thought that their self-made religion would save them when in fact it was bringing them to peril. And so it is today, friends, with all people who engage in self-made religion. Now next we see uh, we're in Colossians 2.20 through 21. There we go. And what we see here is that if we're dead with Christ, we are dead to the stoichia. Okay, so let's read this. Paul says, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not uh, taste, do not touch? Now, first of all, I want to point out, you know I love prepositions, and I, some of you hold that against me. Some of you like that about me. I apologize. But see the term where it says, with, you have died with Christ? Very interesting preposition. That with is soon. And soon is a preposition of what's called association. The idea is, is that when Christ died, when you trusted in him, God considered you with him when you trusted in him. Now, let me ask the question. Does God consider you with Christ mystically or positionally? Well, of course, it's positionally. Okay? So in other words, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, God considered you positionally with him. So much so that in Ephesians 2.6, he also views you positionally as being seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. In realms with Christ. Now, has that happened? No. You and I have not experienced it yet, but it will. So that's how we are associated with Christ. So we are, if we are associated with his death, then the opposite is true. And notice the phrase, to the elementary principles. That word, to, I wish they would have translated that differently. They dropped the ball here because that comes from another preposition, apa. And apa means, it literally means out of or out from, and that is a marker of dissociation. So do you see, if you've died with Christ, you're associated with him, and therefore you're, I'm sorry, did I say associated? You're associated with Christ, and then therefore you're disassociated with the stoichia, and of course vice versa would be the case. If you're associated with the stoichia, you're disassociated with Christ. Okay? All right. Now, notice also the phrase, as if you were living in the world. Again, this is talking about the realm of the world. You and I are no longer considered in the world positionally. Why? Well, we're associated with Christ. We're seated positionally in the heavenly realm. We just haven't experienced it yet, but it's a sure thing. And that's why, again, our hope isn't, oh, I hope the Vikings win, that kind of hope. Our hope is an assured thing because it's based on God's, God's promises, right? And then we come to these ascetic practices. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, these are the practices that Paul was warning. If you do these things and you think you're garnering favor from the angels who will then protect you from the demons or the stoichia, What's ironic is you're actually placing yourself under the stoichia because now you've entered into a self-made religion. And again, so it is with all those who engage in self-made religions today. Ironically, they are under the stoichia. Now, the same theme continues into verse 22 through 23. Paul continues, he says, "...which all refer to things destined to perish with use." And of course, the things that he's talking about here are the decrees, "...do not handle, do not taste, do not touch." They will all perish. And he says, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion 
and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So friends, notice this phrase, commandments and teachings of men. We see this in the Septuagint, like in Isaiah 29, 13, where the Lord says, but in vain do they worship me. Talking about his own people, but in vain do they worship me teaching the commandments and doctrines of men. That's exactly what all false religion is. And that's exactly what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees for. Why? Remember in Mark 7, what were the Pharisees and Sadducees concerned about, or the scribes, I should say? They were concerned about outer cleanliness. So they were mad that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. But what should they have been concerned about? Inward cleanliness. Cleanliness from sin. But they weren't concerned about that. Friends, at Colossae, the heretics, what were they concerned about? Did they fear God? No, they didn't fear God. They feared the stoichia. Were they concerned about the eternity? No, they were concerned about their day-to-day life. Okay? And so it is with all false teachers. Friends, who should they have feared? They should have feared God, not the stoichia. Uh, think of Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's who we should be afraid of. And what should we be concerned with? Our day-to-day lives? Well, yes, but more so our eternal destiny. Okay? Friends, self-made religion, notice it has an appearance of wisdom, but it is of no value against fleshly indulgence. No matter what self-made religious practice, whether you're in Islam, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're in the emerging church and you think walking a labyrinth will get you closer to God, self-made religion falls short in three primary ways. Number one, it doesn't provide atonement. Number two, it will not give you the imputed righteousness of Christ. And number three, self-made religion will not enable you to obey. Remember Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our obedience was caused by who? The Holy Spirit living within us. So who gets all the glory? God does. Friends, self-made religion can't do anything for you. And yet people daily in our own culture are engaged in these practices. Friends, self-made religion cannot save, it cannot sanctify, it cannot provide, and it cannot protect. But I'll tell you something that can. And I have the honor to share with you the gospel, the good news of Christ. The good news of Christ can save, it can sanctify, and it will provide and protect daily. But the good news, friends, of the gospel, remember, it only makes sense in light of the bad news. And the bad news is really bad news. And it has to do with who you and I are as human beings. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And falling short of His glory, the wages of the sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. And... The, the death that we're talking about isn't just temporal and bodily, but it's eternal. God warns in Isaiah 13, 11, I will judge all those who have done wickedly. And who is that? Well, it's me and it's you. It's every single person except for Christ. Okay? And what's worse, in Revelation 20:15, God is going to resurrect the ungodly on the last day, all those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. He will resurrect them specifically with the purpose of sending them to an eternal fire forever. Friends, that doesn't get any worse. That's bad news. But the good news is even more excellent. The good news surrounds the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, He humbled himself and became a man because, remember, he existed as God, with God from all eternity. And remember, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 that he would become a man. He lived the perfect life that none of us could. In fact, in Matthew 5, he said, what did Jesus say? 
He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but came to fulfill it. He filled to the full the requirement of the law on our behalf so he could give us his righteousness. Then he went to the cross and he died a substitutionary atonement. When he died, he appeased a wrathful, angry God and he also covered over our sins so that they are now as far away as the east is from the west. That is for those who trust in him. He was buried in the ground. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And then he ascended into heaven where it's promised that he's coming again to judge between those who will enter his kingdom and those who will not. Friends, what must we do with this Christ and what he has done for us? We must repent, forsake all the self-made religions that we've ever engaged in, and we must trust in this Christ and what he has done alone for our salvation. And so my prayer is, friends, if you're out there, maybe you're listening on the internet, and you have been trying to justify yourself with self-made religions, turn from it, flee it. It will not save you. Turn to Christ in him alone, and you will have salvation. You will get sanctification, provision, and protection. Well, I have two points of application. I know technically that's illegal, but for the sake of time, I only had time for two. The first one is this. And I think this is so important for the church at large in America to get a hold of. We who were saved by grace must believe that we will be sanctified by grace. Again, friends, at Colossae, the heretics, they didn't trust in Christ for their daily provision and protection. Now, today in America, do we have people that say, well, I can't trust in Christ for provision or protection? Not necessarily. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to have an experience with God or be sanctified with God apart from his practices, apart from his grace. And so they're entering into the same kind of self-made religion. And so my point here is we have to be careful that we don't ever, yes, if we start with Christ, we also have to finish with him as well. And so we have to examine, yes, salvation is by uh, faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, but so is sanctification. Number two, we must believe that Christ plus anything means having a different gospel and a different Jesus. Why? Well, because any other Jesus, he can't save you. And what people are really saying when they trust in, or they add something to Christ is what they're really saying is they either don't believe who Jesus is or they don't know who he is. Because if they did, that's all they would trust in. That, you know, that's all they would need, and they would know that. Okay? So now with that, let's start off with our first application point. I want to look at a um, Galatians passage. And recall, uh, in Galatia, the problem there was Uh, men and women were Judaizing. They were going back to the Old Testament civil and ceremonial law. So what were they going towards? The shadow. And they were neglecting the substance. So Paul had to call them on the carpet. And listen to what he says here. And it's very apropos to the message in Colossians. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And that's a rhetorical question. What is the obvious answer? Well, of course, it was by hearing with faith. And he goes on, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so, friends, of course, the point is it's impossible to be perfected by the flesh. That is akin to self-made religion. That is trying to sanctify yourself apart from the means of grace and apart from Christ. Now, let me show you an example of people who do just that, in my opinion. And this is kind of a response um, this is apologetics and a response all in one. And let me just show you where the, or tell you where this section comes from. This comes from Bethel's Interreligious Symposium, and it's in a section called Myth and Fact. This, what I have on the screen, is 
according to Bethel, the fact. And it is written in response to our beloved Jan Markell and Bob DeWay because they called them out on the carpet and they're responding. What I'm going to show you in this slide is that the men and women at Bethel are engaging in self-made religion. And so I think we can learn from their mistakes and we can clarify, again, what the battle is about here in our culture. So, again, let me first of all read, though, the myth that they're reacting against. Now, of course, the myth that I'm reading to you is on their website, and then this is the fact. So what you're seeing up here is their response. So the myth that I'm going to read to you is, of course, probably what you and I would believe about their position. So let me read you the myth. This is Bethel Seminary. They said, quote, The program emphasized various sorts of meditative practices that are Eastern and unbiblical. So that's what they're responding to, that charge. So now let me read the slide. This is the fact according to Bethel. Quote, what was said is that the Christian faith has a long tradition of meditative practices. Now, stop, cut, time out. I can't even let that go. <laughs> I didn't get very far. I got into the first sentence. Um, friends, just because there's a tradition within Christianity of doing something does not mean it's godly and does not mean you and I should emulate it. In Christian history, we can find out that there were Christians who went on the Crusades. Should you and I go on a crusade? We know that there's Christians that held to the geocentric theory that the universe, or at least the solar system, revolved around the earth. Should we hold that? I think not. I believe in the heliocentric theory, thank you. So friends, this is absurd. Just because someone has held something in the Christian past doesn't mean we should hold to it. That's absurd. That's, it's faulty logic. Okay, let's continue. And by the way, the Paul Reasoner they're talking about, he was part of this symposium where he holds to what's called the Christian Zen movement. He's in this movement, Christian Zen. And he's referring to Christian Zen Buddhism. Friends, I did a lot of research into Zen Buddhism. And Zen, you know what it means? It comes from a Japanese word. It means meditation. So what he's saying is, I'm in the Christian meditation movement. And what I'm going to show you is that's just self-made religion. That's trying to perfect oneself by the flesh. Look, listen to their claim. They claim Paul Reasoner commented that Christians can gain insight into themselves by practicing Buddhist approaches to meditation. I'll respond to that later. But at the same time, Reasoner critiqued the self-authentication of experience inherent in Buddhist practice. He commented that Christian meditation may involve being overwhelmed by the presence of God, leading to worship and awe, not the way a Buddhist might describe the, quote, expanded consciousness, unquote, of enlightenment. The experiences are fundamentally different. What they're trying to claim is just because the Christian believes in God, then it's okay if we do our own form of meditation because after all, these crazy Buddhists, they believe in enlightenment. Friends, the issue isn't whether you believe in God or not. James 2.19 says even the demons believe in God and they shudder. The issue is that these men are engaged in a self-made religion and they are trying to have an experience, an immediate experience, an immediate experience where they come into contact with God. What kind of experience do you and I actually have with God? Uh, a mediated one. And now, let me just make sure I'm pronouncing words well. Immediate. The claim that I'm making and the claim that they're actually making is that they can have an immediate encounter where their noodle, their mind, is directly in contact with the Holy One of Israel. They're in communion and talking to Him just like Moses was. And what I'm saying is, no, that is self-made religion. What God has given is a mediated, just with an M. And the mediated understanding of who God is and knowledge of Him comes from the revealed Word. And so they're engaging here in self-made religion, claiming to have an experience with God when more than likely the experience that they're having is with the stoichia. And it, it pains me that a Christian university 
would go there. But friends, we need to respond. Notice also the claim here now in the red. Christians can gain insights into themselves by practicing Buddhist approaches to meditation. Friends, this again is a claim to sanctification that somehow you and I need to know who we are in, by using meditative practices where we, in fact, lose our self-consciousness and become one with the spirit world. Friends, that's no different than sorcery. Remember Galatians 5.20, sorcery, pharmakeia. Pharmakeia means what? To be in an altered state of consciousness. We see the example of that also, um, if you want to write this down, Micah 5.12. Okay? The same word is used, pharmakeia. It is nothing more than sorcery and divination. And that's exactly what they're engaging here. Now, what do we really need to know? And all that we need to know comes from the Bible. God has revealed, friends, in the Scriptures what you and I need to know about ourselves, namely that we're sinners needing a Savior. In fact, we're born sinners. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from birth, he says. That's what we need to know. And then we need to know the remedy to our sinfulness. Friends, we don't need to know who we are by silencing our minds and coming into contact with who knows what. All right, now, I don't, believe it or not, I, can't, I couldn't even fit everything on this slide. So I actually, I'm a glutton for punishment. I listened to this whole symposium, and I'm a slow writer. And so I had to keep re-listening. And I quoted, though, several statements that this Paul Reasoner made, who is a professor at Bethel. And I want, you to, I want to read them to you, and I want to comment on them and make an application from them. Paul Reasoner said this about meditation, what it can do for you. For you. He says, quote, I think one learns humility and to rest in God, unquote. Well, that's a statement or a claim to obedience. And he's claiming to do that not from something that God has revealed in the Scriptures, but by his own self-made religion. He said, quote, One can receive an inner healing from the Holy Spirit. So now he's getting provision from a self-made religious practice. He's trying to be perfected, friends, by the flesh because he goes on to say it also, quote, helps you better control your tongue and mind. It helps you in traffic or with your significant other. Friends, these are claims to sanctification, and he is trying to do it using self-made religion. Is that clear? And he's doing it in a manner where he's in fact trying to get immediate access to God through divination. Friends, mysticism, this is my definition in light of where we find ourselves. Mysticism is the attempt at immediate knowledge of God. And in this case, in my opinion, it is the purposeful suppression of God's ordained means of salvation in an attempt to know secret things by divination. Friends, these men are trying to be perfected by the flesh and they are teaching other kids as well to engage in a false self-made religion that cannot save, it cannot sanctify, and it cannot provide, and it cannot protect. And friends, we need to react against that. These men have fallen short of the call to grace. Okay? And I think we have to learn from their mistakes. So now, wow, that was a lot on that one slide. Let me move on to the next point, though, and that is Jesus plus anything equals having a different Jesus and the reason why, think, think about it this way, friends, the reason why most people add to Christ, this is the real reason. Again, it's either because they don't know who Jesus is or they don't believe what's actually revealed about him. Because if they knew or believed what is said about him, they would know they need nothing else. They would not add their own self-made religion or try to perfect themselves by the flesh. Are you with me? So here, I just have some things written about Jesus 
just from the book of Colossians, and these are just the things I could fit on my slide. And after I read this through, ask yourself, why would I need anyone or anything else? Let me read about our great Savior. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He created all things. He is before all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the church, firstborn from the dead. He reconciled all things, heaven and earth. The fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. That means he's God. He is the head over all rule and authority, and that would include the stoichia. Friends, what else do you need? And what's more, this great Jesus, according to Hebrews 7.25, it says about him, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, those who are going in our culture today to self-made religion are men who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Friends, all you need is to have faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation your sanctification, your provision, and your protection in your day-to-day life. He is all you need. You need no other means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you sent us a Savior who can save us to the utmost. And Lord, we thank you so much that you have not left us with subjective feelings to know who you are or what you have done for us or what is required of us. But yet, Lord, you have given us the objective word of God. And, Lord, we do pray for our colleges and our seminaries and our pulpits that, Lord, they would return uh, to this means of sanctification that you have given us through your word and that they would forsake self-made religion. Lord, that people would return from the stoichia. They would repent and they would trust in you and you alone. So, Lord, uh, in the intervening week here, we ask for um, healing again upon Bob and Carl and all, uh, all the saints here that are sick and ill. Lord, I ask for protection upon my brothers and sisters. Keep them from the evil one. Put the gospel upon our lips and keep us safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. The benediction here is out of Hebrews. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go greet one another.